The book of Judges deals with a period of Israel's history that is somewhat chaotic and shameful. It, it deals with some extraordinarily high marks of God's faithfulness and power expressed to the people of Israel. Great heroes of the faith like Deborah and Barak and Samson and Gideon and other just wonderful men and women of God like that. But also deals with some very difficult and shameful incidents in the history of Israel. And tonight we're going to take a look at one of those very, very shameful incidents. This is a terrible section that we're going to take a look at tonight, starting at Judges chapter 19 and continuing on to the middle of Judges chapter 20. When I say terrible, I mean terrible in the sense that the events that it deals with are just awful to consider. Matter of fact, the great Bible teacher F.B. Meyer recommended not reading this passage. A man who loved the Bible wrote commentaries on the Bible. He found this chapter so distasteful that he said, don't read it. And commenting on the very first verse, this is what F.B. Meyer wrote. It will be sufficient to ponder these words, which occur four times in the book, without reading this terrible chapter, which shows the depths of the depravity to which they may sink apart from the grace of God. Now, what were the words he was saying? He said, just read this about the chapter and forget about the rest. It's right there in verse 1. Let's take a look. And it came to pass in those days when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote mountains of Ephraim. He took for himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. The key words that F.B. Meyer focused on and basically said, just take these words and forget about the rest of the chapter, were the words that says, there was no king in Israel. Now you might be saying, big deal, there was no king in Israel. There was no king at all in Israel for hundreds of years before the time of Saul when he became the first king. I mean, you had Samuel, and he was a great prophet, and you had other people who were Moses, he wasn't a king, and Joshua, he wasn't a king, and he had these wonderful leaders who weren't kings. Couldn't Israel get along just fine without a king? No, because what's meant by this phrase is not just that there was no human king, but also that the people of Israel were not recognizing the Lord God as king. Ladies and gentlemen, if you have people who are ruled in their lives by the Lord God, they need very little government, do they, right? You don't need laws to tell people how to treat one another when they're being ruled by God in heaven. Do you understand what I mean? If we'll be governed by God, we need very little external government. But in these days that the writer of Judges is speaking of, not only was there no king in a human sense, there was no king in a spiritual sense. They had turned their backs on the living God. And so this sets the stage for the terrible story in the following chapters. No king of Israel, it means more than just the absence of a political monarch. It also means that they refused to recognize God's royal rule over them. And so what does it tell you in the rest of verse 1? Well, there is a Levite. By the way, the guy's never named in the whole chapter. It's a central character in this whole account. He's never named. He took for himself a concubine. And we're not told when this happened. We're not told uh, other details about it. 
This is sort of a section, as Pastor Nate pointed out last week, this is a section at the end of the book of Judges where the writer of the book of Judges seems to sort of put an appendix on the end of the book where he's telling a few terrible stories to give us a flavor of what life was like during these distressing days of the judges. So this Levite took for himself a concubine. Now, do you know what a concubine is? It's not a piece of farm machinery. That's something altogether different. A concubine was sort of like a legal mistress. She was a wife in the sense that there was a legal process of having a concubine and you had legal obligations to the concubine and all of that. A concubine had legal expectations of, I don't know what you would call it. Would a concubine call the man her husband? I suppose so. The difference was concubines and their children had no inheritance rights. So it was sort of a legal mistress. She didn't have the same status in her home or in society as a wife. Now, many prominent men in the Old Testament had concubines. Can I rattle off a quick list for you? Abraham, Jacob, Caleb, uh, David, and Solomon, and Rehoboam, they, they all had concubines. You say, well, what do we make of this whole idea in the, in the Bible where men have more than one wife? Polygamy, whether it's with formal wives or with concubines. Friends, this was never God's intention. Never God's intention. The New Testament makes it very clear that from the beginning, God's plan was for one man and one woman to be in a one-flesh relationship forever. God has an ideal for every man to be what's called in 1 Timothy a one-woman man. In other words, his romantic affections and, and attention is focused upon one woman, not upon many whether it be recognized by law or not, a one-woman man. Matter of fact, it has been pointed out that the New Testament teaches very specifically against polygamy in a very important passage. Do you know what passage that is? It's the passage in Matthew where Jesus says, again, this is a clear denial of, of multiple marriage, of having more than one wife, where Jesus said, no man can serve two masters. Oh, come on, that's a little Bible joke, isn't it? Come on, I think that one's good. I really do. I mean, I think... No, actually, Jesus made it very clear in Matthew chapter 19, where he said, From the beginning was it not so that God intended Adam and Eve to come together and for a man to be separated, to leave his father and mother, and to be joined unto his wife from the beginning. That was God's intention. Well, this Levite was out of the ideal of God in having this concubine. So what happens? Verse 2. But his concubine played the harlot against him and went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there four whole months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back, having his servant and a couple of donkeys with him. So she brought him into her father's house, and when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Now his father-in-law, the young woman's father, detained him, and he stayed with him three days, so he ate and drank and lodged there. Do you get the picture? This concubine, the Levite's concubine, was unfaithful to him. And she went off and uh, lived her unfaithful life. But the Levite, I suppose in a very good way, he wanted to win her affection back. 
And so it says in verse 3 that he went after her to speak kindly to her and to bring her back. I think the Levite here is an example of how an offended spouse should act when there's adultery. She broke the bond between them. There's no doubt about it. But he worked hard to bring the relationship back together again and succeeded. Now, let let me say this. I don't have time to go into a whole theology of this this evening, but I'm just going to lay it out very simply. Jesus told us that divorce is permitted when one spouse has been unfaithful. He cited that as being biblical grounds for divorce. But we should never misunderstand that because Jesus never commanded divorce in the case of adultery. If a partner is sinned against in the marriage covenant by adultery, they should, under God's leading, work hard to make the marriage survive and succeed to the best of their ability. Now, I suppose you can always say that if God were to lead somebody and it's unable to work it out and it just can't be done, then fine. God has given them permission for divorce, but we should not confuse permission with a command. And so we would say, good job here, Levite. You're winning her back. As a matter of fact, the father-in-law of this woman, or actually the father-in-law of the Levite, it says there in verse 3, when the father of the young woman saw him, he was glad to meet him. Perhaps the father was glad to see the Levite and his daughter back together again. Perhaps the father was glad to have his daughter out of his house again. I don't know what it was, but he was saying, great, good. I'm glad you guys are back together again. He receives him very warmly and with a lot of hospitality. Now, verse 5. Then it came to pass on the fourth day that they arose early in the morning, and he stood to depart. But the young woman's father said to the son-in-law, Refresh your heart with a morsel of bread, and afterward go on your way. So they sat down, and the two of them ate and drank together. Then the young woman's father said to the man, Please be content to stay all night, and let your heart be married. And when the man stood to depart, his father-in-law urged him, and so he lodged there again. And he rose early in the morning on the fifth day to depart. But the young woman's father said, Please refresh your heart. So they delayed until afternoon, and the both of them ate. And when the young man stood, excuse me, when the man stood to depart, he and his concubine and his servant, his father-in-law, the young woman's father, said to him, Look, the day is now drawing to an evening. Please spend the night. See, the day is coming to an end. Lodge here that your heart may be merry. Did you ever have relatives like this? Anyway, tomorrow, <laughs> go your way early so that you may get home. However, the man was not willing to spend that night, so he rose and departed and came to opposite Jebus, that is Jerusalem. With him were the two saddled donkeys. His concubine was also with him. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, That's rude. All right, verse 5. It tells us what came to pass on the fourth day. Now, this whole portion obviously explains why the Levite and his concubine were delayed in Bethlehem at the home of the concubine's father. He wanted to leave the fourth day, but he was detained. He wanted to leave the fifth day, but he was detained. And so the bottom line is verse 8, they delayed until afternoon. That's why they left late in the afternoon instead of leaving early in the morning, which would have been a much more sensible time to leave if you were embarking on a long journey. So they finally get out of town. They get out of the village of Bethlehem at a late hour, which means they're going to need lodging fairly soon. Verse 11. They were near Jebus. Again, what's Jebus? What's another name for that city? Jerusalem. Keep that in your mind. They were near Jebus, and the day was far spent. And the servant said to his master, 
Come, please, and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites and lodge in it. But his master said to him, We will not turn aside here into a city of foreigners who are not of the children of Israel. We will go on to Gibeah. So he said to his servant, Come, let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night in Gibeah or in Ramah. And as they passed by and went their way, the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there to go into the lodge in Gibeah. And when they went in, he sat down in the open square of the city, for no one would take them into his house to spend the night. The Levite and his concubine considered spending the night in Jebus, which was Jerusalem before the Israelites conquered it again in the days of David. And it was a city populated by pagans. And so what did they say? No, we're not going to stay in the pagan city. Let's go to Gibeah because good, godly Israelites live there, right? We'll be our, among our own people, not among those pagan foreigners. But when they got to Gibeah, what happened? Verse 15 tells you, they get to Gibeah, no one would take them into his house to spend the night. The Levite and his concubine found no hospitality in Gibeah. Now, you and I read this and we go, so? I mean, you and I aren't sort of scouring the streets of Santa Barbara. Saying, would you like to come stay in my house tonight? It doesn't look like you've got a place to stay. But you need to understand, in the traditions and in the customs of the Middle East, both ancient and modern, there is a very high value placed upon hospitality. And for somebody to be needy of a place to stay, and for you to not offer them lodging at your house, was a great disgrace of hospitality. And so this was a significant thing. An ancient reader, a Middle Eastern reader, would go, wow, these people, give you, they're terrible. Well, nobody's going to give them a place to stay. There they are just out in the open square of the city, and nobody's going to help them. You and I read this, and we're not so shocked. An ancient reader would be shocked. They'd, be, they'd have their hand over their mouth. Good heavens, these are terrible people in Gibeah. By the way, I would just say, God commands us to have hospitality. Now, I'm not going to speak to you and tell you exactly how hospitality should be practiced in your home. I'm not telling you to take some person who would be a, a, a great damage, a great detriment to your home, or unsafe to your family atmosphere, or such like that. Take them in your home and have them live there as long as they want. If you were to do such a thing, you would not be helping that person at all, would you? You'd probably be harming them a great deal. May I just say this? Hospitality is a biblical value and a biblical command. And I'm not going to tell you exactly how hospitality should be expressed in your home, but I will with great confidence tell you that hospitality should be exampled in your home. Let God guide you on how you should express it. But if it's your home, is it a place of hospitality? And let God express to you exactly how that should be practiced. But I'll leave it to you with great confidence saying, your home should be a place of hospitality. Gibeah was not. Right now, verse 16. Just then an old man came in from his work in the field at evening, which also was from the mountains of Ephraim. He was staying in Gibeah, whereas the men of the place were Benjaminites. And when he raised his eyes, he saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? So he said to him, we are passing from Bethlehem in Judah 
towards the remote mountains of Ephraim. I am from there. I went to Bethlehem in Judah, and now I am going to the house of the Lord. But there's no one who will take me into his house, although we have both straw and fodder for our donkeys and bread and wine for myself and for your female servant, for the young man who is with your servant. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, Peace be with you. However, let all your needs be my responsibility. Only do not spend the night in the open square. So he brought them into his house and gave fodder to the donkeys, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. Well, finally, the Levite and his concubine find some hospitality, right? But did you notice? It's not from a guy from Gibeah. It's from an out-of-towner, a man from Ephraim who happened to live in Gibeah. The only person to extend hospitality to the Levite and his concubine was a man from their own region. The native people of Gibeah didn't care anything for the Levite and his concubine. You know something else verse 18 says? The Levite says, I'm going to the house of the Lord. Now please remember, in these days, the house of the Lord was not at Jerusalem. He's speaking of the tabernacle, not the temple. The temple won't be built for hundreds of years. He's speaking of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and that stood at a place called Shiloh in the mountains of Ephraim. Okay, so you got the picture here? There they go. They go to bed. They're ready to go to sleep. They're fed. They're ed- Finally, they found some hospitality. They live happily ever after? No, not at all. Now the gross part begins. Verse 22. As they were enjoying themselves, suddenly certain men of the city, perverted men, surrounded the house and beat on the door. They spoke to the master of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him carnally. Do do you read this and just have your mind blown a little bit? Are, Are you shocked? When you read this, what do you say? You say, that's just like Sodom and Gomorrah from Genesis chapter 19. And do you know why? Under the divine leadership of the Holy Spirit, under the guidance of of God's moving, why the author of the book of Judges put this in here in this way? Because he wants you to be horrified by it. He wants you to look at this and say... This is what happens in a culture when there's no king over the people. And again, I'm not talking about just a political ruler. I'm talking about when there's no king who rules over a person's heart. I'm talking about a society where everybody feels completely free to make up all the rules for themselves. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I I am a man, and I, I don't discuss my political viewpoints here from the pulpit or if I do, it's very rarely, and I'm just, that's just not my, my great concern here. But I am a man who believes very much in individual personal liberty. I believe that. I believe that individuals should be free, and that the government should not be there to coerce, that, that, that the government should be as, as um, well, I'm trying to think of the right way to say it, uh, as uncoercive as absolutely possible. I think it's better to err on the side of personal liberty. But can we not admit that this opens any society up to a huge danger? Because that society of maximum personal liberty really only effectively works if the individuals will be governed by God or at least by a transcendent moral principle. 
And when those people cast off God, when they cast off transcendent moral principles, when there is no God in their life, in their heart, there's no king in heaven over their lives, then what happens? Then society slips into the grossest kinds of sin, and it's accepted, and it's practiced, and it's promoted, and society sinks down to a least common denominator sort of stuff. Is it too dramatic for me to say that this is where our culture is today? I don't think it's too dramatic. I mean, look, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to idolize uh, the, the, the America of 50 years ago in some sort of strange, you know, Ozzy and Harriet kind of way that people talk about. But friends, you, you, if you don't think that there's a big difference in public morality, I'm not talking about private morality. I'm not trying to say people didn't sin 50 years ago. Good heavens. But if you're not, if you're not aware that there's a huge difference in public morality between now and 50 years ago in the United States of America, you're blind, aren't you? Isn't that just willful denial? Why is it? Because we, like the ancient Israelites, so many in our society, a great majority, I don't know how many, they live as if there's no king in their life. And look at what happens. What, here, it's just right out of the pages of Sodom and Gomorrah. It says right there in verse 12, that they surrounded the house and beat on the door. The verb form of the term beat on the door indicates that there was an increasingly loud pounding on the door. This was not a polite or a casual request. This was a frightening demand. Ladies and gentlemen, oftentimes when I read the Bible to you and when I talk about it on a Sunday or on a Wednesday, I tell you that the Bible is like a movie in my mind and I invite you to enter in the movie. Turn the movie off here. You don't want to visualize any of this. It's enough just to read the text and to understand what's going on. But it's being pounded on the door. They're pounding. They're pounding. It's frightening. There's an angry, violent, perverted mob at the door. And they say, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him carnally. Again, it's the exact same request or demand made by the homosexuals who surrounded the house of Lot in Sodom. The picture is very clear. There were times during this 400 period of the reign of the judges when Israel was just as bad as Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 23. But the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brethren, I beg you, do not act so wickedly. Seeing this man has come into my house, do not commit this outrage. Look, here's my virgin daughter and the man's concubine. Let me bring them out now. Humble them and do with them as you please. But to this man do not do such a vile thing. But the men would not heed him. So the man took his concubine and brought her out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And when the day began to break, they let her go. Then the woman came as the day was dawning and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was till it was light. Listen, there's no doubt that the perverted men of Gibeah were guilty. Were they not? They bear horrific guilt. They bear a Sodom and Gomorrah-like guilt. No doubt about it. Nevertheless, so was the Levite guilty. 
so was the host of the home guilty. They clearly should have been willing to sacrifice themselves before their daughters and their companions. Again, this is just showing you how degraded, how debased Israel was during this time of the judges. You know, the wicked men of Gibeah were guilty because they were more like the men of Sodom and Gomorrah than the men of Israel. And please remember that Levite and his concubine, why didn't they stay in Jebus? Well, you don't want to stay among the pagans, right? They would have been better to stay among the pagans than to go on to Gibeah. The master of the house was guilty. He was willing to sacrifice his own daughter. And of course, the Levite, that Levite cared nothing for his concubine. How that man could sleep that night, I'll never know. But he awoke in the morning and found this concubine on the doorstep. After, verse 25 says, they knew her and abused her. In describing the full meaning of the original Hebrew, Adam Clark, a great commentator who lived, oh, 250 years ago, due to modesty, he did not translate the literal Hebrew meaning of this into English. He left it in Latin only, so that only the learned people could understand the full implications of the wickedness and the perversion of the men of Gibeah. It's utterly distasteful. And when we start talking about the literal Hebrew, friends, the literal Hebrew is worse than the English. Now, you can see why this concubine left her husband to begin with, right? What an what a uncaring man. Centuries later, Israel still remembered this crime at Gibeah and used it as an example of wickedness. Let me read to you from Hosea chapter 9. They are deeply corrupted as in the days of Gibeah. Now from Hosea 10. Oh, Israel, you have sinned from the days of Gibeah. It's as if it became a, a, a byword in Israel for a notorious season of sin and depravity. Verse 27, when her master arose in the morning, again, I can't get that phrase out of my mind. He woke up, which means what? He went to sleep. Such hardness of heart belongs in no place among the people of God. Friends, let me just give you a heartfelt appeal right now. If your heart is hard and cold towards sin and depravity, if it is, honestly, look, I'm not going to hear him, you know, punch you in the mouth or push you down a flight of stairs or something like that. I'm just going to say, would you please ask God to make your heart sensitive again? If your heart is hard and cold towards sin and depravity, can you recognize tonight that you need God to do a work in your heart? And would you just ask him to do it? Would the year 2012 be a different year for you? Where at the end of the year, your heart was softer and more sensitive to the things of God and to the pain of wickedness and depravity in this world. And your heart just wasn't so cold and hard as it might be here tonight. In any regard. When her master arose in the morning, and opened the doors of the house, 
and went to go out into his way, there was his concubine fallen at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, Get up and let us be going. But there was no answer. So the man lifted her onto the donkey. And the man got up and went to his place. When he entered his house, he took a knife, laid hold of his concubine, and divided her into twelve pieces, limb by limb, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And so it was that all who sought it said, No deed has been done or seen from the day that the children of Israel came up from the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, confer, and speak up. Well, I have to tell you about the heartlessness of this Levite, right? Get up, let's go. Oh, you're dead. Puts her on the donkey, takes her home, cuts up her body. And I don't mean to be flippant when I say it. I'm just trying to say it in modern parlance. He he FedExed her all around the country. All around the leaders of the different tribes. Now he's outraged. Now he's, well, (laughs) something should be done about this. Yeah, indeed, sir. You're outraged a little bit too late, aren't you? Where was your protective urge just a few moments before? But at least he's outraged at some time. And this obviously grotesque way of delivering a message was effective. And it's tragic that the Levite didn't show this kind of concern for righteousness later. Can I just say that to you again before we just consider the first half of Judges chapter 20? Don't let your show of righteousness be too late. Have God change your heart now. Now, before the time is too late. Verse 1, chapter 20. So all the children of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, as well as from the land of Gilead. And the congregation gathered together as one man before the Lord at Mizpah. And the leaders of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now, friends, this is the first good news we see in this entire narrative. The first good news is that Israel was shocked and outraged and said, something has to be done about this. We can't let this go by. We have to do something, and we have to punish the city of Gibeah and the tribe of Benjamin who would allow such wickedness to be. We can't have another Sodom and Gomorrah in our midst. And if God isn't going to send fire and brimstone from heaven to do it, then we've got to take the responsibility on ourselves and say we must police ourselves. It's a positive sign. They gathered for this kind of reason. They were not willing to just sweep the sin under the rug, but they said we must do something about this. It seems as if the crime of Gibeah shocked the conscience of Israel. Now, I wonder if such a crime were done today, because such crimes are done today. But I have to say, and I I look at our nation today, and I wonder if we're capable of being shocked at anything anymore. We're not shocked. We're fascinated. We're enthralled. We're we're sucked in by 24-hour cable news channels. We're sucked in by the mom who murders her kids. By the, the, the pretty girl who disappears. We're sucked in by the, the, the movie star who commits a crime. We're sucked in by this. But, but there's no outrage. It's just this bizarre fascination from a distance. 
Oh, did you hear the latest news about this? More of an occasion for gossip than coming together. Say, no, this is wrong. I guess just what I'm trying to say, and I feel so insufficient to say it. But thinking about this and saying, it just made me say, Lord, what would it ever take for our nation to repent? Lord, what would it ever take for something to be horrific enough that the people of this country would look and say, we need to repent. We need to do something about this. Hello, it's not a business as usual world. Now, it's not that I think that those horrific things haven't happened yet. I think they happen all the time. It's not that we haven't had a good enough reason to repent. It's that our hearts, our our minds are just so, so accustomed, so numb, so cold, so hard. We just need to plea for an outpouring of the Spirit of God and, and realize that we, we are ripe for judgment. You know, the, t- the temptation was for me to approach the study tonight and just to start reading to you news item after news item, right? How far back would I have gone? A couple weeks? A couple weeks searching the Internet for, for outrageous crimes. I could have read you story after story from near and far. But what's the point, right? You know. So you're going to debate the point that depraved things like this happen all the time? And the thing is that we've, We've lost or we're losing our ability to be shocked by it. Well, verse 2 says that the leaders of all the people, all the tribes of Israel, they presented themselves and they said, we're going to do something about it. So verse 3, now the children of Benjamin heard that the children of Israel had gone up to Mizpah. So the children of Israel said, tell us, how did this wicked deed happen? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, my concubine and I went into Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin, to spend the night. And the men of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine so that she died. I took hold of my concubine, cut her in pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of the inheritance of Israel because they committed lewdness and outrage in Israel. Look, all of you are children of Israel. Give your advice and counsel here and now. So the people wanted to know. What did the children of Benjamin do? Why are we fighting this? What are we going to, let's get the story straight. Let's not work on rumor. Let's not work on innuendo. Let's find out. And by the way, did you like the little spin that the Levite put on the story? Verse 5, hey, they intended to kill me, but instead they ravished my concubine. And what he said was true, but he sort of left out the part about the cruel and callous way that he abandoned his concubine to the mob and how he slept like a baby that night. Anyway, he spun the story to his own effect. But starting at verse 6, they make preparations for war. Excuse me, verse 8. So all the people arose as one man saying, None of us will go to his tent, nor will any turn back to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot. We will take ten men out of every hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, a thousand out of every ten thousand, to make provisions for the people that when they come to Gibeah and Benjamin, that they may repay all the vileness that they've done in Israel. So all the men of Israel were gathered against the city, united together as one man. Now again, this was a very encouraging response in the midst of a very dark time. 
The people of Israel came together in unity and they decided to bring justice to the people of Gibeah and to say a crime like this must be avenged. A crime like this must be spoken against. We can't continue on business as usual, as they say in verse 10, that they may repay all the vileness that they have done in Israel. That's extreme, but it's a valid and proper response. Friends, we're going to end it right there and we'll pick it up next week, and finish the book of Judges. But here's my fear. My fear is that we end this tonight, and we sort of within ourselves, tut, tut, that, well, aren't we glad that we would never be part of such depravity? Aren't those people very terrible out there? Can I just remind you of a principle that's at work here in these closing verses of chapter 20? The principle is simply this. That Israel is working to purify itself. It's as if a virus has entered into the body of Israel. And now the antibodies, now the white blood cells, now, now the defenses of the body are coming to sing. This thing must be expelled. It must be dealt with. If we let this virus go unchecked, it'll destroy the whole body. Now, again, I... If you say, well, I'm not as depraved of all this as this well, good. Praise the Lord. But do you have any defense against sin and depravity in your own life? Let me read to you from 1 Peter chapter 4, starting at verse 17. Where the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first... What will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? You know, if the effect of what I say tonight makes you leave this room saying, Ooh, yeah, God, get all those sinners. Haven't you missed the point? Should not judgment begin at the house of God? Here, among us. Should we not open up our hearts big enough to God now and say, Lord, purify me. To say, I'm not as bad as some other people I know is very small consolation. It's not hard to find people worse than us. So what about you and your life and your walk? Can I just call you back? As we spend a time in worship, as we open up the table of the Lord, would you please ask the Lord to touch and to deal with your conscience? The Bible speaks about one of the aspects of the work of Jesus as cleansing our conscience. When you come forward to receive the bread and the cup up here, could you think of that as cleansing your conscience and committing your conscience to God to make your conscience more alive and more biblically sensitive? Maybe there's some of you, your problem is your conscience is too strong. Your conscience is legalistic. Then ask God to correct that. But, But listen, many of us, Hearts are hard. We're cold. Nothing shocks us. We live in the environment of our depravity. and We don't take it to heart. Let's let God start reversing that trend, right? Maybe there's a few of you here tonight, and you'll be touched miraculously by the Lord, and you'll leave here with the soft heart and, and, and warm heart that you should have. Others of you, tonight, it's just going to be one step in an ongoing process that God wants to do in your life. 
That's fine. We'll let God manage all that. But can't we bring our, our conscience, our life, our heart to the cross where Jesus died to forgive it all for us? Father in heaven, this is what we say. We say, Lord, let your judgment begin at the house of God. It's not hard to find, Lord, horrific depravity in our modern world. But Lord, um, we ask that you make us sensitive to sin in the right way. And I just pray, Lord, I pray for my heart, my mind, for my conscience. And I pray for all here this evening, Lord. We want you to do that deep work, that sweet work in our heart. So do it, Lord, and bring yourself glory. We pray this in Jesus' name.